Thank you, Dean. You're, you're very generous. Thank you so much. Hey, this is the absolute best day of the year, isn't it? When you get that extra hour of sleep. So if anybody comes in for the 10 o'clock service, we'll just all turn and glare at them. No, give them grace if they do come in a little bit late. We're actually in a series about joy, about finding it and keeping it. Uh, and it's based on this tiny four-chapter little letter in, uh, to the church in Philippi by Paul. And in fact, uh, here's an unknown stranger on the screen here in a river that uh, Paul probably baptized Lydia and her household and perhaps the jailer and his family as well who became the first followers of Jesus in that church of Philippi. And she and her family found joy through Jesus. And today I want to talk more about the keeping it aspect of joy, especially keeping it in tough times, because we all go through those tough times. So let's just pray together as we open the Lord's Word. Thank you, uh, Lord, for your Word that gives us the truth and the grace as we come to you. And I just pray that you'd open our hearts today as we look at uh, truth And may we receive uh, grace, may we receive challenge. And for those of us who are close to you and those of us who are far away and those of us who are maybe somewhere in the middle, I just pray that you'd uh, rekindle our fire for you, for our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by asking you uh, a question today. How would you respond if you were on trial for your life? I mean, imagine you were accused of a murder that you didn't commit. You knew you didn't commit, but false evidence is out there, and it's quite likely that you will be condemned to to death. And now you're languishing in prison with a major indictment hanging over your head. How would you respond? We just had a man in the public eye who was accused of sexual assault, which he felt was unjust and untrue. I don't think any of us know what is true in this situation, though everybody seems to think they know. But we usually line up on political viewpoints rather than seeking the truth in these matters. Both sides seem to do that. But how did he respond? Did he keep joy, if he had it, under pressure? Or or what about the woman who reluctantly came forward to tell her story? She was being accused of all sorts of things too. And she received death threats from crazy folks, as did the one who was accused. Did she live in joy in the midst of what she must have thought was unjust treatment? Now that I've offended all of you equally, here, we can move on. But what would you do? Could, could you keep your joy under pressure? Or how have you kept your joy under pressure? Would you, how would you deal with those false accusations? Did you live in joy? How do you keep your perspective when things around you aren't doing so well? And how would you deal with false imprisonment? As this fellow I know in India that's on the screen... Five days after I returned home from a three-day of teaching in Kolkata, Jamindra, a Christian pastor, was accused of being involved in the murder of a Hindu swami and was left in prison for months. He was finally released on bail, but now has to appear monthly and pay a fine 
before he's even convicted. And as far as I know, there's no evidence that he was involved in this murder. It seems unjust. Who knows what will happen to him? And seven men have already been in jail for nine years for the same crime. Will Jamendra be the eighth? He doesn't know. And I don't know either. But how would you contemplate life and death? I mean, which is better, living or dying? In the Philippians passage that Rick dealt with last week, in today's passage also, we see Paul contemplating matters of his own life and death. He's in a tough spot. He's, he's, wanting, he's, he's waiting in chains to go on trial for his life. His only crime is really inviting people to have new life in Jesus and being falsely accused of taking a Gentile into the, the Jews-only area of the temple. And yet... His attitudes are stunning. Uh, The things he thinks about, how he views his life, are different from the way that most Americans would view their life today. And and they are even different from most followers of Jesus today. I want to read a purple passage in the Bible. You know, one of those that we quote so often. And this is what Paul wrote while he was in prison. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, if you're following along in your Bible. But Paul has a dilemma on his hand. Uh, Does he wish for death, or does he wish for life? The, The choice is not really up to him. It's actually up to the Roman government. But still, he has to contemplate it. And here's how he ponders matters of life or death on paper. Verse 22 of of Philippians chapter 1. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And what shall I choose? I, I don't really know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you, you people in in Philippi, that I remain here in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Jesus Christ will overflow on account of me. Both life and death have immense value to Paul. He knows that even in prison his life has value. It's not wasted time like some of us might consider it. It's an interruption to his plan, but he doesn't see it as wasted. He just keeps doing what he's always doing. He's preaching the gospel to those around him. He's probably in house arrest in Rome and... and, uh, not chained down with an electronic ankle uh, brace or monitor, but, but chained to a Roman soldier or two. But Paul doesn't see himself as a captive. He sees a captive audience. Paul can't get away, but neither can this soldier that he's tied to get away. And they have to listen to him, or they have to sort of plug their ears up and go, la, 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 la. You know, that's the way it works. And some listened because Paul has already seen results in his witness. If you look back at verse 12 of that same chapter, now I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's been clear throughout the whole palace guard 
and to everybody else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. His life has value. The gospel is spreading even with the main preacher in chains. But Paul knows that his death has value too. He would, of course, rather be rid of the chains, the the beatings, the difficult travel, the negative response of some people as he talked to them, the challenge of battling with his own temptations within. If he died, he'd be completely free. No pain, no tears, no struggles in those daily struggles of life, battles that come, battles that go. He would be with Jesus Christ, which is better by far, he says, than this life. And Christians today, we believe that uh, there is a great life after death, but we seem to do everything we can to avoid it. And, And perhaps we should. Because death is that great enemy that was never intended by God in the first place. But death is also a transition to victory. And yet, I don't see a lot of people truly looking forward to that, to being with Christ in person. In fact, when somebody has an illness or complains about their aches and pains, uh, I often hear people say, well, it's better than the alternative. Is it? (laughs) I mean, is it really? Paul's little letter to the Philippians is, is really a powerhouse of straightening out our perspectives. It encourages us to walk the path of life intentionally. Don't just uh, let life creep up on you and do its thing to you, no matter what your situation. You're not merely a victim of your own circumstances. You're a person created by God to live God's way with deep joy and with a powerful purpose in your life. And Paul is in what most of us would call a terrible situation, really. Life has dealt Paul a bad hand. And yet, for some reason, Paul doesn't see it that way. He walks his road to the drumbeat of God, not to his own circumstances. And even in prison where he has no freedom, he knows that no one controls his destiny, destiny his ultimate destiny, but God alone. He knows, as Jesus told his disciples, that no one can take away your joy. Now, you can let go of it, but nobody, no circumstance, no government, no workplace has the power to take away the joy that's produced in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Eugene uh, Peterson, the translator of the message paraphrase of the Bible that many of us read, He died last week at the age of 85. He wrote in one of his books, The story of our faith, our very existence, begins and ends in joy. Joy at the beginning, joy at the end, and joy everywhere in between. Joy is God's creation and gift. No authentic biblical faith is conceivable that's not permeated with joy. And Paul teaches us how to live and keep our perspective, to find joy and to keep your joy when you're in a tough spot. Now let's focus today on the last four verses of the first chapter of Philippians. Uh, It's verse 27. 
whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same tr struggle you saw I had, because Paul was in prison, also in Philippi. He seems to have a pattern of that. And now here that I still have. Paul says, whatever happens. Whatever? <laughs> I mean, whatever? I mean, how do you live in the whatevers of life? How do you live in the whatevers of life? How do you view, because how you view your purpose in life determines how you live in the whatevers of life. If you don't view yourself first and fully as a as a follower of Jesus, and your purpose is to live and follow right after him, to walk in Jesus' dust, to love him and to love others, and to build your character, you will not know how to live in life's whatevers. And here's how Paul says you live in the whatevers of life. And if you're taking notes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old blank filler in there, so if you can fill in those blanks, you can do that. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. This word for conduct yourself has political overtones, really. It, it's actually from the, from the Greek word uh, polis, which means city. So it has citizen, citizen overtones in it. It means conduct yourself as a citizen of God's kingdom, a citizen of the gospel. Your polis really is, is the city of the gospel. And don't live then just as a citizen of this world or a citizen of this country or of this city. You have a more powerful citizenship. So pull out your God's kingdom passport as you journey in this life. As Paul writes later in chapter 3, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our real citizenship lies, and we must remember that. He says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And, and we're used to considering the value of things we buy. We say, well, how much is this worth? Um, in many countries, you know, everything is up for negotiating the value of something. Here, most prices are fixed except for cars for some reason. And uh, everything you buy on Craigslist. Uh, so we always have to ask ourselves, here's the price. Is it worth buying. Uh, will I still find it worthwhile when I get it home? Or will it just hang in the closet? Or will it just sit on a shelf? Is it still worth it? Can I justify what I spend on this? Is it really worth my money? Now think about what the good news cost Jesus. What the gospel cost Jesus. Are you living in a way that shows the worth of what Jesus did for you? Or do you just leave him in the closet sometimes?
The Greek word for weighty is actually axios, and and it has a root meaning of weighty. It means weighty. The gospel is weighty. So on your side of the balance scale, does your life have weight in reference to the other side, the gospel of Jesus, the good news? Does the way you live your life reflect the weightiness of that gospel of Jesus? Do you live in such a way that the good news is highly valued enough to use it in every aspect of your life every day? Or does it just sit in the closet or on a shelf? Now Paul probably emphasizes this because some of the Philippian churches were not conducting themselves in a way that showed that they valued the good news as highly as they ought to. And these Christians were being tempted to compromise their beliefs, their lifestyle, and some were perhaps living as the gospel was just a a cheap trinket. And, And I know we're also being tempted to live in a way that's not worthy of the gospel by our flesh and by the world and and by the things around us, by the devil himself, we can easily forget the extreme treasure of the gospel and instead treasure things that are really just cheap trinkets. So how are you living? Does it reveal that the gospel is the greatest wealth that you hold? Would someone near to you someone you work with, someone you live with, would they know that the gospel is the greatest thing you value? In Ephesians 4, Paul says it a little differently. He says, walk worthily of your calling, of your calling. And he tells them how. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He reveals to them that the how of living worthily, of walking worthily of your calling, is to live with character. It's to, and he gets really specific. He says, you've got to be humble. You must be gentle. You must be patient. You must tolerate other people that you just would rather not in love. And you need to preserve the unity, the unity of the body of Christ in particular. And Jesus lived that way, and he calls us to live that way. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul connects our way of living to him personally. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Men are worthy of the Lord. It's not just worthy of the gospel. It's not just worthy of the high calling that you have, but it's worthy of the Lord himself. He writes this, For this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Of course, we need that. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now you're going to need wisdom to know God's will if you're going to live God's way. And then you will actually please God. And you'll be effective in your walk with Jesus. You will allow the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit 
that fruit of joy, that fruit of, of, of living up to the high calling. You'll be developing your character and you'll be giving you increasing ability to know the will of God. And you'll live more worthily for him who died for you. You'll put some weight. So you'll put some weight on your side of the scale and seeing how much uh, the good news of Jesus is worth. He didn't die for nothing. He died to transform your life so there'd be more in accordance with his will. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom. He keeps adding a little bit more as we build up this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, Your witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says the way he lived his life in, integri in integrity is an encouragement for them to live the same kind of upright and blameless life that he did. And he exhorts them as a father who always wants the best for his children. He says, you know, come on, kingdom kids. Come on. You've got to live like you are in God's kingdom. You, your father is the king. Your brother is, is the king. You need to live like it. And then in his next letter, 2 Thessalonians, Paul mentions how he knows that they're living worthily of the kingdom. He writes, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and your faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you're suffering. So it's your perseverance and your faith that actually reveal that you're worthy of living in the kingdom of God. It's as you go through these trials, as you live in the whatevers of life. Now let's be clear, this, this perseverance and faith, these characteristics don't make you worthy, but they reveal that there's weightiness, that there is a response to living in God's kingdom. Um, maybe you don't have persecutions. Maybe you don't even have any afflictions or difficulties. But, but you probably have challenges to your faith every day. Things that bring you to a fork in the road and say, Am I going to live for God? Or am I going to live just for myself? Or am I going to live for my coworkers or somebody else's approval? And you'll be tested to live worthy of somebody else's Values, your boss's approval, or some unworthy idea in your head rather than to live worthily of the gospel. And it's only as you go through those daily challenges with endurance and with perseverance, and of course with trust, faith in God, that it's made clear that you've committed your life to living under the kingdom. Now, let me say it again you will never be fully worthy of the good news of Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't pay back the price of your salvation. You can't ever balance the scales in such a way that your life has the same weight as what Jesus did for you. But you can live in response to Christ's weighty 
good news. I know I want to gain some weight. Well, maybe not that kind of weight, but, but I want to add to my featherweight so that my life is a substantial response to the heavy weight of the power of Christ. We desire for God to think, you know, it was worth it. It was worth it sending Jesus. For Jesus to think, you know, it was worth it because those guys, they're living with those weighty lives, those lives that, that make a difference in the world. They're transformed. The grace that I gave them, it was worth it. Now, one of the ways we live up to our calling is to stand firm as one. We stand firm as one. The message version actually paraphrases the end of verse 27 and 28. He says, stand united. Singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message, the good news. Not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. Your courage and unity will show them what they're up against. Defeat for them, victory for you, and both because of God. So all of Christ's churches are conduct to conduct themselves in unity. In unity. It actually says contending as one soul. One soul. We stand united as a body, not factionalized, not in cliques. We stand together with others in the church. We stand together as one, united in purpose to advance the gospel. And um, our vision is singular. It's that others would come to see that great value that you also value in the good news of Jesus. You know, when difficulty hits the church, as it often does, when change comes, change of pastors, change of worship styles, or a host of other chains, a lot of people start hiving off into factions. This group complains about that group. We're never listened to. You know, I, I never get my way about this. And what happens is that we sometimes value the way things are done more than we value the gospel itself, more than we value Jesus. We value the little things and we forget the great value and what's really important. And as we perhaps soon call a new lead pastor to Central, some of you will like him immediately and perhaps some of you won't. Some of you will be annoyed that changes that uh, perhaps will come. You may want to leave. You may want to find something that you like. It's not what you like that is important. It's not what your preference is. It's not what your style is. We stand together on what? The great value of the gospel, right? The great value of Jesus Christ. And some of the churches in this area have really shown a, a united kingdom uh, mentality rather than a my church mentality as well. I think that for, for giving an example, Westgate Church has, has been a great example in our community. They've provided Sunday speakers for us while we were in transition here. They're also quietly providing funds for smaller churches in the area that couldn't make it without their contribution and help. And our church has also done the same thing with other churches in our area when they've struggled or when they've needed a, a new start. 
And we want Central to continue to be one of those churches that cares about the whole community of faith. In fact, the whole community around her, here, not just our own little community. We want to stand with churches and ministries that are doing God's work all around the world. And that's why we always emphasize mission to help people in other parts of the world as well and who don't have the same resources that we're blessed with. And when churches face difficulty, we stand with them. Contending as one soul. We're, we're in this together. We're one body. We're in this gospel experience together. Later in Philippians 4, Paul pleads with two specific ladies to agree with each other in the Lord in chapter 4. Because he knows that a little tiny quarrel can lead to a big quarrel that leads to a big old split. So reconcile quickly. You don't have to agree with each other. You don't have to agree with me, though I'm usually right. But no, no, not me. <laughs> You don't have to agree in every opinion, but you need to agree in your love for one another. Does that make sense to you? That your love for Christ supersedes everything. That all relationships can be reconciled if we stand together and we put our focus on Christ and His values. Is there somebody in our church that you need to reconcile with? Is there somebody in your family that you need to reconcile with? Do everything possible from your end to make sure that reconciliation happens. And do it today. Don't wait. Be the first one to take the initiative. Even if you don't think you were the main one, the main problem, do everything you can, and you'll be glad you did. And when we have to contend against opposition from the outside, as we sometimes do, or to stand up for something that others may oppose, we can only do so with strength as we stand together. Not when we're splintered into groups who are stuck on things that don't really matter. You know the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. Of course. We don't want to fall. And we stand with purpose. We have purpose. We stand with purpose for the faith of the gospel. We remember our calling as believers, as followers of Jesus. We know that it's Christ Jesus who saves us as we put our trust in him. And when people oppose our way of being made right with God through faith, we say, no, no, no. We say it in the kindest way. This is not the way. We stand with it, that it's Christ alone who makes us saved who takes care of us, who's the one who's worthy of it all. We have to say it's not the way that you have to do everything right. It's not the way. It's Jesus Christ who forgives us. And we stand in courage, in courage, without being frightened, he says. If Paul can live a life full of joy in prison, surely we don't have to be afraid of those around us when we're not in prison. We can live for Christ openly. And we must remember that the church is not on the defensive. Jesus promised that nothing would prevail against his church. And it's wrong for the people of God to sit back and merely complain about what this world has come to. Instead, we must proclaim what has come to this world. And as we live for Christ, 
We don't have any reason to be afraid of those who oppose us. They may oppose our values, our purpose, our way of life, but we answer with confidence and also with respectfulness. We live up to the high calling of the gospel in how we respond. And when God's people act in unity with love and kindness toward one another, the spiritual forces of evil and the dark world tremble because it confirms what they already know, Paul says. Their defeat is inevitable. And as we stand in unity, we realize that suffering is inevitable. Rather not bring this part up, but it's the truth, isn't it? Suffering is inevitable. Now, there are at least two ways we suffer. We suffer just in the ordinary course of life. Uh, as a result of the fall. Sin has brought consequences into our world. Just being a human being in a fallen world is going to bring us difficulties and pains and hurts and, and disasters. Our world is messed up. Sometimes our weather works against us. A disease always threatens and other people may be against you. Dreadful wars hang over us, and people may have caused us to become victims of hateful crimes or sexual attacks or verbal abuse. When we suffer in the ordinary course of being a follower of Jesus, we're still called to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. But Paul here is largely talking about the inevitability of suffering as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus. He says in, in verse 29 and 30, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. As I mentioned earlier, I have recently been involved with teaching some bivocational pastors in India. And they travel three or four on a motorcycle into the mountains of Odisha. Uh, they go to where the gospel of Jesus has never been spoken. And these people there are very poor. Their villages are small and they're tight. They believe a, a mixture of Hinduism and uh, animism and witchcraft. They have strange charms and idols that they worship and desire for them to keep good fortune in their life. And when somebody decides that they want to follow Jesus, they decide on a day when they will give up their, uh, when they will destroy their idols and their charms and their amulets. However, others in the village believe that bad things will happen in their village when people give up these idols and follow Christ. And they believe that it will affect the whole community. And sometimes they try to run out these new Christians from their village, making them leave their home and community. Their persecution is very real. And it could happen here. It may never happen here. But don't think that suffering, don't think that being in a tough spot in life, having to make hard decisions is unusual and that you have to escape it. Rather, we need to realize that Christ is right there with you. Followers of Jesus throughout the ages has suffered with Jesus, and you or I may well too. Suffering is normal in this world. Not getting everything the way we want is normal, and not to be avoided at the weighty cost of the gospel. And so even in the midst of the whatevers of life, you can choose joy. 
You can choose joy. Joy just doesn't happen. Uh, joy is not that self-satisfied delight that everything is going our way. But it's the settled peace that arises from the good news of Jesus and making that the focus of your life. When Paul describes his tough situation back in verse 18, he writes, And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I'm going to continue to rejoice. And it sounds here like joy is actually a choice. Now, happiness may not be a choice. It's just based on what happens. But joy is actually a choice. And Paul will continue to rejoice. He's made that choice. He's not a victim. He's a victor through Christ who gives him strength. And we don't, if we don't have this joy, we need to search our souls to be sure that joy is not just connected to our physical or emotional comfort rather than to the great value of the gospel. Because how you view your purpose in life will determine how you relate to the whatevers that this world throws at you. If you believe that being happy is your purpose, then you will probably not follow Jesus. If you believe that following Jesus whenever, wherever, and however is your purpose, you've chosen joy. The main thing to remember when you're in a tough spot is that whatever happens, God is still God, right? It doesn't change. He hasn't changed. It may not look like God is in control in a tough situation. It may not feel like it when things are bleak. But God is God. He's in control. He's going to see you through the whatevers of life. I don't know what your tough situation is. But when you know your purpose, when you know the God who loves you, you'll be able to agree with Paul. Yep. For me to live is Christ. And to die, that'll actually be a gain. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Just lead you in sort of a guided prayer. I want you to think about how you're living in the whatevers of life. How could your life be a, a little bit more weighty? How could you choose joy even when things are not so easy? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you live on that strong foundation that produces joy. Just take a moment of quiet here and tell the Lord what you hope for and how, he, how you want him to transform you, to change you, to move you further. Lord, um, 
I know that you want to transform us all. For those of us who are older, we still need to be transformed. I know I still need to be changed. For those of us who are just starting out on this adventure of following Jesus, Lord, I just pray that you keep those people focused on the right thing. Lord, if there are things we need to repent of today, would you help our repentance to be genuine? Help us, Lord, to speak words to you. And Lord, would you help us to receive that grace, even when we know we've sinned and fallen short of your glory. Help us to receive it, and for that to give us the power to move on with our lives in your joy. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.